Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. We have an amazing guest today. He is the co-founder of PIA Residential and has more than 20 years of real estate experience. Here to discuss their transition from owning single family homes to multifamily, identifying primary and secondary markets and understanding cash on cash and internal rates of returns a little deeper. Please welcome Danny Catton. All right. Today we have Danny Catan with us. He is founder at PIA Residential and Sell to Rent. Danny, thank you so much for being on the show with us. You know, we usually get started by asking our guests, like, how did you find your way into real estate? Like, how did you get started? The truth by failure. I ended up in real estate because after leaving my investment banking job, I ended up in the dot-com world and that didn't work well and helped me sort of recognize what a bubble was. And so when the bubble started happening in real estate, I sort of smelled it a little bit. You know, it just didn't make sense that people were just making money just by doing business in a napkin. And somebody said, you know what, it's going to be the same bubble as it happened in the savings and loan crisis. And so I went to study a little bit of history and figure out that in the late 80s, early 90s, the government took over banks and they sold loans for pennies on the dollar. And this thing happened of a bubble bursting. And there was this great opportunity to buy real estate at extremely distressed prices. And I said, you know, why not? Just, you know, I think it sounds good. I was sort of a little bit of tired of looking at the world through lenses of, you know, let's create technology or companies. And, you know, the appeal from buying bricks that produce rents was there. So I was coming from a little bit of a gray place, right? So the reality of real estate, which is you buy a property and you rent it, it became appealing. And... To do that, I had to go first to the mortgage side and learn about mortgages and try to buy some non-performing loans. And then in 2008, we bought our first house. And then after that, we created a platform. We ended up with 400 houses and 400 small multifamily doors. Wow. And over what period of time were you able to accumulate those 400 units? We started one by one. So initially it was with individual money. In around 2011, Warren Buffett talked about the single-family asset class and said that it was good business, not practical. By then, we already had a vertically integrated platform with software and property management and maintenance. So we started getting the attention of some institutional money and family office, and we ended up partnering up with a family office that gave us a runway, and we ended up you know, increasing that portfolio to about 400 single families and 400 small multifamilies. So... I will say that our purchasing days were between 2000, really actively 10 to 13, 14. And then we were just, you know, waiting a little bit and holding. And we sold in 2018, the majority of it to Cerberus. Nice. Were they typically like in the same area or were you kind of buying all over the place? Like, how did you get those 400? 
Well, we only bought in South Florida. So compared to the national bid funds, we are very local. Yeah. Right. And I believe real estate is local. At some point, people ask us, you know, why don't you go to Orlando? Like, why? I mean, a lot of fish in the sea of South Florida. When you are starting in real estate, my advice to people that are hearing is to stay local. Real estate is about, you know, learning about the neighborhood and smelling it and really understand what works, what doesn't work. It beats me when people that don't know anything about a city end up buying property in Detroit and they've never been to Detroit just because mm-hmm. something is cheap there. And somehow they get stuck with a bad deal. We were buying properties for nothing, right? We were buying properties at $70,000 that one is worth two hundred and ten. I think we all made mistakes and home price appreciation corrected a lot of those mistakes. We're right now in a different market. I think that there's very little opportunity in order to have to mitigate that risk. You have to really know the market. So stay local. By the way, a friend of mine stayed hyper local, which is like he didn't move from like 40 blocks and now he controls those 40 blocks. And so in the world of strategy, if you're asking me, we spend a lot of time driving from South Miami to North Broward or North mm-hmm. you know, Palm Beach. And sometimes those were two hours. Yeah, that's a lot of time. Fixing it, repairing it, sourcing them. So if you become hyper, hyper local, you will have the realtors know you better. People will call you. So I will keep to a city or to a blocks in the city. That's really interesting. So... Going back to the original part of your story, you mentioned you were buying them one by one. And then around 2011, you guys started scaling. And I'm very interested to hear how you were able to scale up so quickly. Like, what was the team like that you built out? I mean, what enabled you? It sounds like you bought 600 properties over the course of a few years. I think that we started in 2011 with about 150 units between single family and small multifamily doors. And we ended up with about 800. The first thing is we bought one by one, right? Again, Mm -hmm. we had some small multifamily units, mostly duplexes and fourplexes. The largest one we had was uh, 76, but mostly one by one single families and then duplexes and fourplexes. And it's just a lot of work. I mean, real estate sometimes is not glamorous. I went into... I myself visited 6,000 homes to to buy 400. Like I went inside of those. And sometimes it was in rough neighborhoods, right? And sometimes I will drive from seven o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And you'll be looking at a house in South Miami. And then you get the phone call that, you know, this property just came into market from a realtor and that, you know, you have to go see it because they're going to list it tomorrow. And so you'll go and drive another an hour and a half. So I was driving in average about 25,000 miles in some years. And that's about the circumference of the world, right? <laughs> but not only that, I mean, I was walking into houses where they were vacant and, you know, there were like smells and sights and that you don't want to be, right? In some neighborhoods, they were rough. So real estate is that glamorous. You know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, he owns real estate and he, you know, just sit down at home and do nothing and uh, collect the red check. That's not correct. <laughs> I completely agree with that. So who was on your team? Was it so just I, you? I have, I have another two partners, which without them, we couldn't have built this. And they're amazing people and everybody has their own magic power, right? When we started buying properties, it was just buying the property and then somehow... You know, we hired a GC that fixed it and then 
we rented it and we had some property manager. And then we started to have to build our own software because at that time, single family rental didn't have software. And then we brought in a director of contractor and then we became a, a property manager. And then now we're managing for us or for the investors that came to us. We had a vertically integrated team and, you know, we went through the pains of hiring people, finding that they were not the most honest people, firing them. We had our own warehouse, parts worked out of that warehouse. We found that some of our workers that were working for us were not really working full day. When you build a team, it's natural that you're going to have issues and friction. But at the end, we ended up with an amazing team of professionals and all of the, I will say, assets that you need in order to do what we did, which is acquisitions. Then once you acquire, then you have the general contractor that comes and fix it. Then you have the property manager that comes and rented it and then collections, and then eventually dispositions, which we have realtors that work with us. We have a CFO. We have people in technology. We have the warehouse, the employees that work for us, the maintenance crew. And eventually, we started outsourcing some of the sort of back end. We had a desk of about 10 people in India doing reconciliations and utilities and stuff mm. like that. So, you know, it scales up. I mean, all of those things that we were doing back then in the single family, trade, most of them are automated. So software is there, right? So you don't need a whole desk of people turning on and off utilities. Now there's a company that plugs in into your property management. You push a button and it does it itself. You don't have to go see all the properties. There is an Uber for people will go see properties for you, right? And now you have 3D maps. And so there's a lot of things that can be scaled, but at the end, my message keeps on being the same. If you're going to do real estate, you have to go see it. You're buying a $200,000 property. Spend two hours of your time. Go touch it, see it, smell it. You know, stand in a corner for an hour, figure out what happens. Drive it during the night. Will you live there if you're going to be a tenant? Go do it over the weekend. Look at the statistics, the criminality. Go talk to the businesses that are around, right? We did that for a lot of the properties we bought until we realized, okay, we're buying in the same neighborhood. Now I know where it is. At some point, I can actually walk, drive a street and can tell you, you know, the color of the house that's coming next because, you know, I've driven so much time, but (laughs) it's still local. But you need people that can touch those things. The minute you start subcontracting things and you kind of like clean the things and that you're only sitting in in a desk, it's dangerous. I always said that real estate is about boots on the ground and not Gucci's on the floor, right? You have to go touch it. Yeah, that's a I good like one. it. I'm pretty curious to hear a little bit about your institutional experience. So I don't know if you're able to, but are you able to describe the partnership that you had with the institution and institutional investors and how that kind of like helped you scale up and what they were able to and why it was a good thing? Sure. So again, 2011, 12 different times, right? We have built this platform and we started speaking to some of institutions and family offices. And they recognized that what we had was valuable because to build it and to have the knowledge that we had, it was very difficult, right? A lot of the people didn't know about the single family trade. I was fortunate enough that Jamie, my partner and cousin, had operated a couple of franchises of We Buy Ugly Houses. And at that point, he had bought and sold 600 properties flipped whole thing. So he was coming from that. My other partner Sol and Jimmy's brother, you know, had done development. So he knew about construction. So putting three persons 
like causing a calibre the same that calibre in the room with institutional sort of experience in the asset class and doing the single family asset class there were not that many and so the family office recognized that you know what these guys are good and this is not us just bringing the capital they're also bringing a lot of knowledge so we were able to structure a deal where they brought the capital they got paid a preferred and then after that we did a 50 50 split on the profits that's awesome did you set that up kind of as a fund or were you asking for capital for each house? Because scaling up to 400. No, right? no, it was kind of a fund. I mean, it wasn't really structured as a fund at the end. Basically, it was our only investor and we were just buying properties and they were basically bringing in the capital we needed. Okay. Well, that's certainly... So, say it wasn't a fund. It was a company. If you, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, it was structured the company. I think a lot of our audience is potentially in that kind of arena where they're looking for capital. Like, did you go out and seek these people out, or how did that kind of relationship come about? I basically throw a dart, and first name that it landed, they gave me money. <laughs> it's true, it works. Only yeah. in the movies. No, I we talk to people until our fingers bled. Right? It's just basically that's the way it is, and then. You find out the people that you started talking to first are the ones that eventually came around. Yeah, raising money back then, it was hard. Everybody was scared, okay? And I believe raising money now, it's equally as hard because all the people are not scared. They seem to have forgotten about what risk is. And somehow, you know, when you're pitching them a really good real estate deal, they come out of that field, or at least they did a couple months ago and said, well, you know, I have this great investment in Bitcoin, right? And so you're competing with a lot of distractions. But yeah, raising money, it requires a lot of effort. And by the way, if you're going out and raise money, you have to be very structured. You need to have a very good presentation package, right? Who are you? Why? How much money are you putting in? All those things. Long gone are the days where, hey, I have a building, I call them friends and people just throw money at you. That doesn't exist. Yeah. At least not where we are. So you mentioned that the landscape has changed since 2011. I think everyone can agree that prices have gone up significantly (laughs) in the past 12 years. What are you seeing in the current landscape and what are some of the pitfalls now that we're kind of reaching? Probably if we haven't crested the peak of the cycle, you know, we're getting very, very close to the peak of the cycle. First of all, let's go back to 2011, 2009. Market's down. Citibank is trading at a dollar. We're able to buy properties for $70,000 and we can rent them to the government for 10, 12% cap rates. And we're begging for money and the people with money and liquidity are scared. They're afraid that the market is going to double dip. And for two years, there was no liquidity, two, three years. Mm-hmm. We went to the banks. Impossible to get a loan. We went to the banks and forget about for one house or for 10 houses, it couldn't. So I had a conversation about but six months ago with a gentleman that says, oh, you guys were lucky because you started investing at the right time. And I believe that that is not a good statement. We just <laughs> persevered and we, even our investment thesis. And we went against that common wisdom, right? We believe that where the market was afraid and scared, right? We realized that value was there. Replacement cost was way above what we can buy them. And the U.S. government via Section 80 was paying a 10% cap rate. There's no money, right? In the meantime, you know, the T-bills are at zero. And somehow people thought that this was a risky business. Mm. And I'm pulling my hair, whatever little hair I had. (laughs) Why do you see risk here? What is it that we're not seeing that you're seeing, right? I mean, people need to rent a place. 
And that's when I started sort of developing my thesis that residential, the residential asset class is perhaps the most resilient asset class that I know of. People need a place to live. So if somebody's hungry in the street, you give them food. But if somebody's homeless, you don't bring them to your home. You like give them money, you go to a shelter, right? And for me, I think that a shelter, it's a primary need of a person. It brings you security, it brings you shelter from the weather, it allows you to create a home, a family. When recessions happen, we saw how families kind of bunched together and said, you know what, we're going to pay a rent no matter what. Yeah. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. There's the family consolidation where the unit, you start having the three tiers of grandparents, parents, and kids all in yes. one place. Is They're still going to have a place. They're still going to have a place. And you know what? When we were buying properties, I remember I was buying properties. There was this place called Lauder Lakes. Outside of Lauder Lakes is 441 Route 9, I believe it is. And I always like stopping this light and there was this plaza that was half empty. And I started seeing through time how the owner went, you know, for rent two months for free, for rent moving. You tell me what you want, right? So this is retail, basically impossible to rent. In the meantime, our portfolio was almost full. You couldn't not rent a property. Now, if you were asking too much rent, you were going to have it vacant, but you drop it by a hundred bucks and then you have people basically renting. So this is what I like about residential. It's a primary need. People will have it. Now, we're in the workforce side, which it's needed. Now, if you're in the luxury side, it might change when, when the economy goes to the toilet and the bankers are no longer willing to pay their rent, but that's a different story. So in 2011, 12, when we started growing, the economy started shifting because suddenly... Blackstone is doing single-family, Waypoint, Starwood, single-family asset classes created. And I was there in the room where, you know, the first sort of conference in Phoenix, we didn't know what the heck was going on. Everybody thought it was a trade. Nobody thought it was going to be an asset class. Some people will tell you, oh, no, we knew. I'm like, that's crap. No, everybody thought, you know, we're going to buy a bunch of them. We're going to sell them later because there was no secondary market for that being sort of created. So how are you going to hold these things? And then eventually Wall Street targeted in and created the liquidity needed to hold these things. And before you know it, right in 2018-19, it starts taking off. I think that on the single family side, we've seen the full cycle. We sold in 2018 because we didn't see any more upside. The way I look at real estate is you have three legs to stand on. One is the replacement cost. The other one is the cap rate. So it's the spread of your cost of capital to the cap rate. And the third one is your economic value, right? If you translate a rent into a full mortgage, how much mortgage you can afford with that rent. And so let's say if you can afford the $200,000 mortgage, right, and the houses are still worth $150,000, you know, you still have some sort of upside, embedded upside in there. And we saw that those lines were already reaching to the top and we said, you know, let's sell. 
And this is 2018. So econometric models told me, you know, we were reaching the top. We never expected what happened in COVID. Those things were just basically changed the ballgame. The rates went down and then people started buying more and their rents went up. And I think that right now it's different. People ask me, what do you think is going to happen now? I'm like, we're back to normal, right? I've heard that a couple of times of like, the last 15 years has not been normal. Like older no, real estate no. investors are like a normal market is kind no, of what I, we're I think, experiencing I think, now. I think from 2008 to 2019, it was normal. It was okay. just a market going through the cycle. They gave too much money and it just became a cycle. It was very much needed. Then COVID happened. They printed money. Rates went to zero and suddenly it was the financial engineered real estate again, right? Everybody's thinking about, you know what, 95% leverage because you got zero cost of money and mes loans and all these things happening. You couldn't underwrite rent, rent growth forever. And some of these models just underwrote rent growth forever. And everything was done in the name of, oh, there's going to be positive migration and there's going to be supply demand imbalance and all that stuff. Eventually it like, gets caught. And so we're back to normal because... Any time in the economy where the money doesn't cost, then it basically creates a response situation. If my money is not costing me anything, I'm just going to go do whatever I think I do because there's no cost to that money. Now that money is quite, quote unquote, expensive. I think that now we're back to real real estate people. Before we were a bunch of people who anybody who had a couple of friends who gave him some dollars went and bought a multifamily, flipped it and make a million dollars. And now that person thinks that, you know, they're a professional real estate investor. I think that a lot of people got confused by what they learned about real estate in the last two years. And so my message is, yes, you made money. Great. Congratulations. But did you make money because you actually created value or was the value created for you because, you know, the Fed decided to keep rates low? Yeah, it's market driven value, essentially. Right. So, Danny, you know, you said you sold off a bunch of properties in 2018. Like, what have you been doing the last four or so years to get you to where you are today? Multifamily, what I should have done instead of homes. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, listen. So in hindsight, Freddie and Fannie are amazing institutions that kept on lending, even though, you know, in 2009, 10, 11, you know, the banks were very shy about lending. And I think that the people who got into multifamily had unbelievable access to that, right? And at the end, real estate, it's about leverage, conservative leverage, nevertheless leverage. And the way to think about it is if somebody gives you 70% loan to value, right? And you only put 30% to double your money, you need to sell it for 130. And if you put 100% money to double your money, we sold some family and my partner sat down and we basically said, how do we do this in scale with less people, less headaches in a more safety way? We believe that multifamily in a way, because it's an asset class that has existed for you know last 40, 50 years. There's a lot of knowledge, embedded knowledge. So what we did is we built a really robust platform to go acquire multifamily. And so we brought in people with, you know, the way I look at it is no hair and a lot of great hair. So we brought in veterans who have been through cycles and we started looking at properties and kissing a lot of like frogs to look for that princess. And so we settled with the investment thesis of buying B-class properties in B neighborhoods in secondary and tertiary cities. And we basically underwrite a lot of properties. We underwrite about 800 properties per year to go buy two. 
And, you know, we're talking $30, $40 million worth of properties every time, buildings, 200 units usually, right? We try to identify properties where there is a management component that is not working well. The second part is that there's proven value added, and I'll go back to that in a second. And the third part is secondary markets where, you know, they're starting to scale up. So it's kind of like a two-horse town going to a three-horse town, right? On that, we started, we bought our first property in Pensacola, Florida, amazing market. Then in 2020, COVID happened. And then, you know, so our plans are not working well because you know what, what are you doing COVID, right? It's like, do you buy, you don't buy, what's going to happen, right? I remember calling an investor and he goes, you're thinking about buying property. And, you know, in the meantime, everybody's afraid of buying from the Black Plague. I'm like, well, if you die from the Black Plague, you know, it doesn't really matter how much money you have in the bank. But if we survive, we can buy things for cheap and you're going to be thanking me for this one. And, you know, kind of got pissed on me, hang on the phone. But the reality is that that was the time. That was a great time, window of opportunity to buy. Finally, we convinced some people to sort of like feel comfortable with the investment thesis. And we ended up buying a property in Jacksonville. Then, you know, in 2021, we bought a property in Savannah, Georgia. In 2022, we bought a property in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then after four properties that we bought using an SPV GPLP structure, we were asked by our investors to launch a fund, uh, not only to make the fees more efficient, but also to lessen the risk on the people we're investing. And we believe that you know our investors have been there with us for a lot of time. And by the way, we're open to investors. We're always talking to new investors. Deserve that. And we created a fund that is very efficient on fees. We don't charge money on committed, but we charge money on deployed. We charge very little fees. We're very, very upfront. We basically are now trying to underwrite properties to a 15% IRR and a 7% cash on cash. And the 7% cash on cash, it's very important. I mean, cash on cash is basically the guiding light in what we do, right? And so with the fund launch, we bought a property in a place called Hoover in Alabama. And we did that in October. And you know, it's been great, going great so far. That's awesome. If just for our listeners and maybe also for us, I know what like first tier, second tier, third tier is, but can you explain kind of like those type of cities and how maybe you identify them or like what you look at to see, you know, you said that it went from a two horse to a three horse town. Like what does that kind of actually mean? And maybe dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So again, the primary secondary cities is there's not a book that it tells you these are the ones. It just depends on some of people say, okay, it's the NFL cities, right? If it has an NFL team, right? It's a primary city. Again, Green Bay Packers, the Green Bay, it's not a primary city. <laughs> I mean, Jacksonville. Right? I mean, Jacksonville wasn't until right now. It's a lot of attention in Jacksonville, right? Some people said, well, if it has an international airport. So you have the gateway cities, right? Boston, Miami, New York, LA, San Francisco, Dallas, right? And then you have like the main cities, right? But then the way we look at them is we never been to Pensacola. Actually, we had because we were looking at a portfolio of single families way back then. The day I went to Savannah, Georgia, I'm like, I'm an idiot. We should have been here way before. It's just a city that has good economics. It has the port. It has schooling. It has tourism. It has demand. Amazing city. Great vibe. Right. And it's one of those cities where it just you can see that the growth is starting to happen. I mean, if you do research and you go sit down there for three, four days, you start making the necessary questions, go to a chamber of commerce, you know, talk to the bankers, so forth and so on. 
you will definitely realize that this is a city that is poised for growth. And it started becoming evident when people started migrating to the Southeast. And by the way, the migration was happening way before COVID. You identify those secondary tertiary cities where you started to realize that this is a city where people are migrating and it's starting to grow, right? So I don't know. There's not a clear answer to that one. Where do you think migration is going to shift? There's been a massive move to the Southeast. And there was a pretty large movement to the Southwest, but Phoenix has just become so oversold or like overpurchased. I mean, the prices there are incredibly high. Where do people go after this major migration? Again, the thing with real estate is you have to sort of look five years ahead and say, where's the market going to be five years from now? And if rent keeps on going up in certain markets, People are going to say, I don't have to pay $4,000 to live in a crappy house when I can pay $2,000 to live two hours from here or an hour from here. And if you overlay into that, like self-driving cars and work from home and, you know, virtual sort of teleportation and stuff like that, then the question in reality is, is there going to be a need for urban life, right? And, you know, to pay all this money and all these things. And why do we have to be in Phoenix? Or why do we have to be in New York? Or why do we have to be in Miami where, where I'm right now? And the reality is, I don't know. But all I know is that it's getting tough to make a living these days. And if you don't create the job opportunities for people to be present in that city with the correct wages, then they'll go somewhere else. Because why work for, I don't know, $50,000 per year as a secretary in Miami when the rent is double, when you can basically get the same amount of money in Savannah for half the price of your rent. And by the way, rent is becoming the number one expense. Let's not even talk about health insurance, (laughs) right? I don't know. That's why it's very important for us when we look at things is that, you know, we find that the rents have to be afforded to the median income of the place we're buying in. That for us is very important. Who is going to pay the rents that we're underwriting? And if there's enough people out there making that type of money to pay it. Because the number one job that we have, Chris and AJ, is that we don't work in real estate. Our job is not real estate. Our job is wealth preservation. We're the stewards of our investors. They give us $1, we have to give them at least $1 back. We do that by investing in real estate. Our job is to make sure that when people give us money, we give them the same amount of money, what we promised, and a little bit more, right? So when we start making risks of, oh, you know what, I'm going to rehab this whole unit and I'm going to make it gold, and I'm going to charge $2,000. And then you go like, okay, but who's going to pay that? Don't worry. If you build it, they will come. I'm out. And I'm I, go back to proven, <laughs> I go to proven value added. And proven value added for us is, yes, we all know that if you take an old apartment and convert it into a new apartment, people will like to pay more. But can we prove that they've done that? So when we look at a property and the seller tells us, eh, we turned 10 apartments you know, into newer apartments that people paid us more. I don't know if he gave monthly rent or a free TV. I look around the area. I look around the neighborhood and I said, okay, you know, how are people doing in renos, right? And if the statistics are there to prove it, then I'll do it. If not, I don't. So for me, proven value added, it has to be according to the needs of the base of tenants that are around. Yeah, that's doing your due diligence and making sure that B property is in that B area and that like a renovated is the rent comparisons are going to be what you expect to get. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with proven value added. 
once you have that cash flow, it's easy to forecast. Yeah. Because we know rents don't come down in periods of stress. And if they do, they come up very little. Prices might yeah. because of cap rate, but rents don't, right? And yeah. if you have long-term debt, which we always did, all of our buildings were purchased with 10-year debt, where people sometimes laugh about it and say, you know, why are you going to long-term debt? You know, floating, you know, you get more IRR and so forth and so on. Then the rest is easy to underwrite because taxes are taxes. You hire a tax expert. Insurance is insurance. Well, I don't know. Right now, insurance is going <laughs> wild. But, yeah, we, we hear a lot up. about Florida and insurance. With the yeah, it's, it's on, you know, it's 50% going up. Yeah. Right. And the rest is maintenance and management and all these things that are fairly easy to underwrite because it's a percentage off. And at the end, what we underwrite is when the right cash flow. And people go like, well, five years from now, there is the exit and there's the cap rate. And the reality is that the IRR is the mental masturbation you do with the exit cap rate. That's the bottom line. <laughs> right. I mean, I can manipulate the IRR by changing the rent from. 1250 to 1255 and it changes. Yeah, everybody can finger right? a pro forma to make it say what you want yeah. to, but like is that actually founded or based in reality? Correct. And so what we do is we talk about quality of IRR. Yeah. How much of that IRR comes from actually cash flow, right? So a project that is 7% and by the way, when we talk about IRR, we also talk about plain vanilla debt, you know, because there's a big difference when you talk about a very funky capital stack with preferred and secondary and all that stuff, then we just talk about one simple loan, right? So IRR can be manipulated by the capital stack. But when we talk about quality of IRR, how much of that IRR comes from cash flow? So the IRR of 15% from a project that is 2% cash on cash average and 15% IRR is not the same quality as a project that it's a 7% cash on cash average and 15% IRR. Uh, yeah, I mean, that just speaks to the risk in the project, right? Like if you're a lower cash on cash, then it's going to be a higher risk project. Um, yeah, and if you want to be a higher risk project, go invest in the stock market. Or development. Some of the risk profiles people, <laughs> no, I'm, that's serious. I'm like, sometimes people bring deals, is like, you know, that's worse than a stock. Yeah. You're making a bet that in five years from now, the cap rate is going to be this, and the... Rent is going to go this, and you're going to be able to refinance, and this, and this, and that. So let's get one thing straight, right? Risk plus risk is not to risk. It's risk squared. So when you have four things that happen that need to happen for you to do an exit, you're basically, you're risk to the fourth. It's Just exponential. <laughs> there you go. Well, cool. Yeah. I guess talking about the plain vanilla debt and just how you can max out that IRR. It's such a valuable way to look at a property or an investment. So I guess my question is, how are you getting that 7% cash on cash You know, right now with the way interest rates are going? And it's just such a difficult thing to find. I Well, remember when you talk about in a five-year model, when you talk about cash on cash, it's a five-year average, right? Okay. okay so for those of you listening out there, right? When people tell you cash on cash and IRR, it's meaningless unless you really understand how that capital stack is built. So the cash on cash, when you have plain vanilla debt, basically there's no secondary financing in year three, for example, is way different than one that says, okay, I'm year three, I'm going to get you back. So for example, our projects usually start with a low cash on cash because you're basically starting to raise rent. So you start at a four in year one, maybe end up with a 10 in year five. Right. Okay. 
that 7% applies to the money you invested. So if you invested $100,000, in five years, you're going to get $35,000 in cash on cash, plus whatever upside you have when you sell the property. When you have some sort of financial engineering in that capital stack, people might tell you what the average cash on cash is, but the real question you should be asking is what's the weighted average cash on cash? Because let's say you invested $100,000 in the first couple of years because you know you have so much debt on it. I mean, the first couple of years you have a 2% and a 2%. And then on year three, out of the $100,000, they gave back to you $80,000 because they refinanced. And then now your cash on cash goes to 15% in years three, four, and five. So you're at 45 plus five, but you got the first two years, you're at 50, you know, divided by five is a 10 cash on cash. Again, I'm exaggerating. Yeah. And people be like, oh my God, I put in a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to get $50,000 in average. And the reality, it's not. No. You're going to get 2% on a hundred, 2% on a hundred, and you're going to get 15 on 20, 15 on 20 and 15 on 20. Right. So at the end, you're going to get $13,000, which is an equivalent to about two and a quarter, give or take, right? Cash on cash and IRR are not absolute numbers. You need to understand where they come from, how they're calculated, and you need to make the proper questions, right? So when I talk about a seven cash on cash, you're actually buying something that starts at a four, and then you start increasing the rents and creating the pops and so forth and making management better. And we do it that conservatively, by the way. That is great information for investors to like really understand that capital stack like you're talking about. And then those figures, everybody seems to kind of calculate stuff just a tad bit different or, I mean, like the calculations are the same, but like when you're talking, you throw a refinance in there or the dissolution of some portion of capital, like it can get pretty confusing pretty quick. I like your method of like the basic, like, okay, if this was a, long-term debt, like this is what it would be. And the weighted cash on cash is a a great metric as well. Yeah, that's a great tool. I wrote a couple of articles in Forbes. One talks about when a cap rate is not a cap rate, and the other one talks about the IRR and the quality of IRR. And, you know, most of us think about cap rates, oh, it's a good cap rate, a bad cap rate. And I went to smart people and says, you know, will you get a 6% cap rate or a 4% cap rate? Which one do you buy fast? And they're like, the six. I mean, very few ask the question, which is like, what well, it depends. Yeah. If I buy a 4% that stabilizes at an 8, then a 6% that stabilizes at a 6, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we're in a higher end market here in Portland. And so often yeah. we're buying lower cap rates, but we know that we can provide a significant value add. And that allows for us to buy some lower cap rates, but it's all about in the underwriting and what you're confident that you can get out of the property. Yeah. And the other thing that I will tell people, the investors that are there is look for groups that have two or more partners. Yeah. Like be worried because we complement each other. My partners and I, we don't think alike. We complement each other very well. So for us to go buy something, the three of us have to be under agreement. And trust me, that's very hard. (laughs) Sparks fly. Yeah, for Um, sure. And everybody has their own pet peeve as to how they like to see things underwritten. And that creates balance, right? Whereas I've seen people who like invest with companies that have this charming owner of the company that has been doing real estate. For, and basically he puts the numbers. I know of somebody who worked for uh, Solo, you know, one of these guys that basically commands a lot of money. And he will just tell them, you know, I want to buy the property, make sure the numbers work. Yeah. And that was it. 
That does happen. We all say, don't get emotional in deals, but that does happen. Well, Danny, I think it's time for us to get to our last four questions. I'm going to start you off with the first one, which is what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Invest in real estate. Don't be tempted by the technologies and other businesses. And by the way, invest in real estate that is not glitzy. Yeah. You know, invest in workforce housing, go to the places where you have low income and, and do that. Don't be afraid of leveraging things when the cash flow from rents are there. Let me put it this way. Buy a single family, rented, rehab it and rented, rinse and repeat. Keep on doing the same. <laughs> and scale up. <laughs> scale up, yes. Okay. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I was selling ice cream lollipops to my neighbors. Ice cream lollipops. Yeah, I was, I was uh, like natural juice, freeze it, put a stick on it and sell it as I pop. You know, <laughs> how old were you when you started that? I don't know, seven, eight. Of course, I got nice. zero cost of goods. <laughs> I got yeah. zero cost of goods. Right? It's your parents' food. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Yeah, yeah, it matter, right? I love it. Genius. Uh, next question is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? I'm an industrial engineer where master's in finance. Engineering gave me a mind to think through problems and finance gave me a mind to put it in numbers. I have a talent. God gave me a talent, which is I can look at numbers and really understand them well. Like I'll look at a spreadsheet and I'll say that number is wrong, right? And the same people can read music. I can read numbers. And I have this plastic mind that I can sort of look at things very quickly. And I believe that that formal training in engineering and most important the people who I learned from who gave me the courage to go do things by myself. And then the people that I learned from when I was doing my master's in finance, which is not my professors because I had very good professors. I did my MBA in Wharton. So I got, you know, one of the best, pro- Peter Linneman and Jeremy Siegel and those guys, you know, awesome professors. But the people that were next to me, my fellow students, which I learned a lot from them, different perspectives because, you know, people came from all over the world. I think that that set me up correctly. Not thinking more about it, I should have studied law. I guess the lawyers make more money than we do, but <laughs> that's okay. I don't think that they actually they get, do. <laughs> yeah. well, but they're hated. That's okay. Uh, okay. And our final question, Danny, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Wow. That's a good one. One of the things that I suffer from, it's sort of a little bit of the lack of focus on things. Mm-hmm. And my entrepreneurial mentality, it's always popcorn, right? It's like, oh my God, there's an opportunity here, an opportunity there. I've gone into a lot of ventures and some of them I won money and lost money. And I wouldn't say that there's a biggest mistake because every mistake that I've done in my life, I really learned from it. I sat down and says, what did I learn from here? But in general is you need to be very, very worried about modeling correctly your business and putting it on paper. So what I learned is that business in your mind look way, way, way different than when you put it on paper. And the best thing that I learned is before you go into any venture, ask for advice. Call somebody who's done it before and they will tell you about it, mm-hmm. right? Most people, most entrepreneurs are very open when it comes to taking phone calls from people from other entrepreneurs. Hire an advisor. Listen, I've seen people buy $10 million properties and they just do it in the word of the realtor. Because the realtor thinks it's a good opportunity. Hire an advisor doesn't make a commission. I think that what I learned in life is there are people who are smarter and better than you. Go ask them. I think that's great advice. 
I actually like utilize this podcast to interview people like you and get that advice. Like uh, if you're setting out to do something, finding the people that have done stuff before, that's incredibly great advice. And invite them on the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Danny, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to maybe learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Well, if you guys want to invest in our fund, you can go to PIResidential.com. So that's P-I-A-Residential.com. And, you know, feel free to shoot me an email, Danny, D-A-N-N-Y at P-I-A-Residential.com. Just put in the title, you know, podcast. And so I know it's coming from you guys. And I'm always available for people who want to ask questions. Always learn more by helping other people than anything else, right? Because, you know, when people call you with questions, that you're like, oh, you know what, I went through this or I didn't go through this and you start exchanging ideas and then suddenly now you have people around the country and the world that you connected to because you help them or they help you. So it's amazing. I encourage people to write to me. And you know what? I post a lot in LinkedIn so you can follow me in LinkedIn and, you know, friend me. Awesome. Well, Danny, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your knowledge uh, with everything. I know I got a couple good tidbits out of today for sure. Cool. AJ, Chris, thank you very much. And again, I appreciate your time and sorry for the being in the car, but you know, father duty. Hey, no problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.